Hello, this is Aaron Eckhart, and you are listening to Center Stage with Mark Gordon, the beautiful one and only Mark Gordon. Center Stage, Center Stage, Center, Center, Center Stage. Center Stage. Welcome to Center Stage. My name is Mark Gordon. On this program, we're going to talk with Eric Marola about his new documentary, The Andorra Hustle. Eric. Welcome to Center Stage. Thank you very much. Great to be back. First of all, give me the give me the brief synopsis of this film because it's there's so many layers I know. to this movie. So, so I had when I was trying to write a log line, I, the best I could come up with was a private bank in Andorra is assassinated by Spanish, American, and Andorran governments and their efforts to destroy the Catalonian independence movement. <laughs> That's the best I can do, because it is, it's got so many tentacles. I started this in spring of last year, like a March, April, and um, I basically, it was like a full-time job. It wasn't like a lot of my other movies where I kind of took my time. I literally just dropped everything and didn't let anything interfere. So I'm kind of amazed that I pulled this off and basically it's a year and a half from starting to shoot and research to like on Amazon Prime. It's crazy. Yeah. How did you sift through all this material to develop <laughs> this through line? I think that's kind of what I'm good at like, is just taking an absolutely overwhelming convoluted story and figuring it out. That's the fun is like, cause I'm a storyteller. Like how do I figure out how to arrange this chaos into something that someone can understand it? Uh, I'm not going to pretend that I didn't get frustrated and think that I maybe got in over my head. It became a full-time obsession where I literally did nothing else. Um, and I, if I went down one road and I needed to find documents, I found them. And I got lucky because in the beginning, people were very nervous to talk to me, understandably. But because Andorra is so small, once I started gaining the trust of some people and they really understood my intentions, and that is to not do another hit piece on the story and actually try to tell the truth for the first time, the world kind of opened up. My usual research um, became a lot easier because I was pointed in directions I never knew existed. I guess like anything, if you, you kind of have to know me, I just think when I sink my teeth into something, I just get tunnel vision until I get to the finish line. So yeah, it's, I can't really explain it better than that. I mean, it was, it was brutal. There's no question. Well, how did you find the story? Because, yeah. I mean, I'm like probably most people, I've never heard of Endora. I tend to like to do weird stories that no one's ever heard of, but involve players that everyone's heard of or subjects that everyone knows about. And I've always been fascinated by innovative technology and how it disrupts the status quo. And I ended up doing a lot of films about how that affects the world of medicine and science, because it gets really hairy when you invent something that can disrupt an entire industry like like a really important treatment for cancer that is a competitor to what exists or things like that. And it's the same with the story. It has kind of the same ingredients. It kind of reminded me a lot of making the first movie, my first movie, Brzezinski, and all the elements and especially the theme of this, these poor victimized people in Andorra that are up against the Spanish secret police, the U.S. Treasury, and like all this chaos. But I always wanted to do a movie that was outside of this niche I've created of medicine and following these controversies in that world. And I've been really fascinated with um, how cryptocurrency, um, whether it be Bitcoin or, or a, a stable coin, that's something that's tethered to the dollar, whatever, is probably gonna disrupt the entire system as we know it of money, the way the banks work and everything. 
you had a billion dollars in crypto, you could carry that across the border as a Syrian refugee with a password in your head, get a computer, download it. You don't need a bank account to move your money around. And I was just fascinated by that. So that just let me down different doors and different roads. And then I started you know, looking at Cyprus and Argentina and all these countries that go belly up. And then um, the Section 311, which is a part of the USA Patriot Act, caught my attention and how powerful that is and how that can kill banks with a stroke of a pen. And um, and then I noticed that all these banks that had a Section 311, and people that don't know what this is, after 9-11, USA Patriot Act, buried within it, something called a Section 311 that gives the US Treasury power to literally, like metaphorically send like a drone missile anywhere in the world to uh, blow up a bank. <laughs> so, and it's and it's done under the guise of you know protecting against terrorist funding. But the more you dig, you realize they've never used the Section 311 once in its history for any actual terrorist funding or anything that was actually dangerous. It seems to be used as a political tool. And then you look at like HSBC, which laundered a billion dollars for Sinaloa drug cartel. And you look at Donska Bank laundered 230 billion for the Russian uh, mafia. But no Section 311s were uh, issued against those banks. And those were terrorist organizations they were laundering money for. So just the more I poked around, the more interesting it got. But I hadn't discovered BPA yet. And then I looked at the list of banks hit by a Section 311. I noticed that more than half of them, they would withdraw the Section 311 soon after what apparently meaning they had to do that because they had no evidence against the bank. And BPA was the fastest withdrawal in its history. It was 11 months it took to withdraw. And then like I found out that the owners were suing the US Treasury and like this all this chaos. And I just kind of just kind of kept poking and kept poking. When I realized that this bank was completely innocent and then simultaneously these other banks uh, in the same country of Andorra were actually guilty of doing the crimes that they were, the BPA was accused of. And not only that, they were sharing some of the same clients, yet only BPA was excluded in this target or, or included in this target. All of this was collateral damage from another larger war, a centuries old war between Madrid and Catalonia. And BPA was just kind of, you know, caught in the cross, cross, you know, kind of like almost like collateral damage, just like Hit, got hit by shrapnel and caused just and just devastated, you know, dozens of uh, families' lives and 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 people's entire life savings vanished. Tell me about uh, Jordi Sinca. Yeah. So yeah. So here's Jordi Sinca. He is the uh, minister of finance for the country of Andorra. And so of course, as the minister of finance, when something like this goes down, that's his job to deal with that. He and the minister of justice. So Jordi Sinca assigned uh, one of the big four auditing firms, Price Coopers, to come in and audit the bank to find the criminal activity. And they couldn't find anything. So they had, you know, at I don't really know the details of how much Jordi Sinka played with uh, this um, scenario where he had Pricewaterhouse manipulate everything to make it look like everybody was guilty. But uh, but more to the point, though, here's this guy who is like this, you know, the superhero of Andorra, Minister of Finance. Meanwhile, he and of course, he's in charge of this bank that's, you know, allegedly charged getting charged for money laundering and all these crimes. Meanwhile, he's in the Panama Papers himself. He was a blood diamond smuggler helping warlords and, you know, <laughs> and people that are in jail for crimes against humanity, you know, just before all this happened. So Jordi Sinca and many of the characters in the movie on the government side, I just I had to point out what I discovered and and the hypocrisy and the contradiction uh, between, you know, the people trying to like, quote, do the right thing and like they're the honest ones trying to clean up the mess of BPA when they are the actual kind of criminals that BPA was accused of being. 
And of course, he's operated under complete impunity. He's gotten had no charges against him. And he just continues. And after he closed the deal with Pricewaterhouse to to rig the data of this bank to make it look like they were committing crimes, you know, he, he tried to become the head of Pricewaterhouse, you know, in Andorra. That's <laughs> like, and the story just never stopped. So, and of course, he didn't make it because of you know a quote serious reputational problem because it was obviously a quid quo pro. It's like, okay, come in here and rig this, you know, and uh, you know, give me a job working for you. You know, we'll pay you a lot of money to rig this, but you got to give me a job later. You know. <laughs> It's kind of shocking the way that they, they pretty much ruined this bank and then J.C. Flowers buys it for like a yeah. fraction of what it was worth. If they didn't abide by certain conditions, you know, it was basically an extortion attempt against them before all this went down that you know, the Americans are going to help kill your bank and we got an American company lined up to buy what's left of it. And of course, that's exactly verbatim what happened. And American company was J.C. Flowers. They bought it at an 86% discount. This bank was destroyed. <laughs> they moved the so-called clean assets to a new bank and sold the new bank to American, a private equity firm all the way over in the United States. And by the way, there was no bidding allowed. There was no competition allowed. It was exclusively given to JC Flowers. That's something else I couldn't possibly fit into this movie. But uh, yeah, I mean, isn't it suspicious? I, mean, I obviously asked anyone from JC Flowers to talk to me and uh, they basically said, uh, well, if you come up with some contradicting information that we think we need to address, we'll talk to you. But otherwise, no. What, I, what they mean is, like, if, we, if I find something on them, then they might step in. But <laughs> So I don't know. I kind of gave up on that uh, with J.C. Flowers. But there's a lot of still, there's a lot of gray areas. There's a little bit of mystery, like what went on behind the scenes. Plenty of Freedom of Information Act uh, document requests have been made on behalf of the owners of the bank to figure out what went on behind closed doors between J.C. Flowers and the U.S. Treasury, if at all. And in addition to the Andorran side, it, uh, the Arab, it was called, it was like this new entity that was formed to deal with the situation. A new branch of government was formed and a new law. They refused to disclose any of the of the minutes of any of the meetings or any information whatsoever about how this agency six percent discount bank purchase was uh, transpired what were some of the challenges that you faced making this film well there's a long list of challenges um one of the first ones was oh my god uh nobody speaks good english <laughs> you know so i had to run around with an interpreter and in, shame on you people from catalonia not speaking <laughs> know, right? they've been just trying to speak their eric they've been trying to speak their <laughs> own language for years and now you're you're all mad because they don't speak english well, it's funny because I'm such a classic American that I never learned another language. And Spanish would have been an easy one if I had ever done so. And I really realized the benefit of having, like, say, at least Spanish under your belt. Um, so once I got past that, um, because obviously, you know, trying to edit an interview when you don't know what's being said, you have to send it off to this guy, you know, to transcribe it with time code, figure out what's being said. You kind of have an idea of what was being said, but you can't edit anything shrewdly without that. But more than that, honestly, it was realizing how big the story was as far as all the tentacles and how many directions it went and seeing if I could do it in under two hours. Like I really came close to maybe turning this into a five hour, five part series. But didn't really have the budget for that. It was kind of risky to do that. I didn't have like a Netflix behind me. I've always raised the money independently. And um, I mean, there were moments where I you know, would call up my Spanish assistant slash translator and said, I think I made a mistake. I think I'm in over my head with this, you know. Um, it wasn't easy, but once it, the pieces started fitting together and once I really knew the story like the back of my hand, 
And once I fully understood the Catalonian relationship, I realized I've really got something here because the first half to two thirds, it's kind of laborious to get through, but I think I'd tell it in an entertaining way. And then when I finally get to the why, why is this happening? And you can take a breath and it, things calm down, but and, and as far as the pace of it all, but things just get, of course, get keep getting worse at the same time. But uh, it's just it was just such a well-rounded story. And it also is continuing to go on. That's another challenge is what if these guys end up in jail before I'm even done with this thing, right? Because this trial is still going on. And also COVID made it challenging because I actually was uh, uh, had was scheduled to show this movie. It was done back in April. Into, I'm not kidding. And in front of the EU parliament in Brussels, and I was invited by Carles Puigdemont, who's now an MEP in the EU, former president of Catalonia in exile, uh, to uh, the, the theme of the sort of the event would be lawfare, using the law as a form of warfare, which is a big problem over there. And it's happening in America now as well. So I was going to have an actual screening in Brussels as its world's premiere. And then there's gonna be a round table question and answer discussion afterwards with cameras rolling and the media there. And that was gonna be the end of the movie, just to see how the EU could deal with this chaos. Cause the EU is completely unaware of this, even though, forgot to mention, Andorra is not a part of the EU. Um, they're not a part of the IMF. They have no central bank. They're this really bizarre country sandwiched between France and Spain that has no real affiliation with the system of Europe. It's so bizarre, anyway. Uh, I could go on and on about the challenges. I mean, it was not an easy process, but at the same time, that's what makes the process project so rewarding is that I pulled this thing off. And by the way, it's in three languages. <laughs> I did an English version that you saw. I have a completely Spanish version and a complete Catalan version. When I say complete, I'm talking all the graphics, all the narration, everything is in those three languages. <laughs> what did you learn about yourself making the movie? I've learned that I'm getting better at this. Um, I've really, I'm really proud of myself for taking something so complicated because everybody said the same thing about the Brzezinski story. People that have been with this story for 20 years said, I don't know how you put all that together. How did you make it understandable? Like, I can't believe it. Um, so I'm going to toot my own horn here for a minute and say that uh, I'm really good at that. And I have a lot of stamina and when I'm passionate for something about something, there's just no stopping me. And I'm, you know, I'm almost 50, and I always wondered if I still got the energy for this kind of work, and I still do somehow. Um, I mean, it's one thing to do a movie, but when you're spending 50% of your time on a plane or in a taxi on the other side of the planet trying to get it done, lugging around hard drives and all the camera stuff, and it's just, you know, <laughs> it's just nuts, you know? You know it's totally different, uh, you know, kind of a setup. What kept you going? during the making of the film? To be honest, I think I became really emotionally attached to these people. Um, I really, when you, when you, it's one thing to see the movie and it's another to get to know these people and meet their kids and like see what this has done to them and to see how devastating this horrible series of events is. And then I started showing more and more compassion to the Catalonian population who have not really given a, been given a fair day in court by really any of the mass media. Um, and uh, that's really what kept me going. And also in the hopes, which I know is naive, but I always have this hope with every one of these sort of David and Goliath stories I tell, with the hope that maybe it'll make an ounce of a difference. And in this case, it might because Andorra is so small. It's one thing to go up against pharma, like I have in the past. And it's another to go up against a country of 80,000 people and, you know, a bunch of corrupt Spanish secret police, most of which are, you know, some of which are in jail now for the crimes that are in the movie. So like, 
Um, and there's no way you're going to go up against the U.S. Treasury. That's just been proven over and over again. Um, but uh, yeah, in hopes that seeing the reaction that's going to happen from this is probably going to be as big as my Brzezinski movie, if not bigger. But of course, it's most of the reaction is going to happen on their in their part of the world versus ours. What would you like an audience to go away with after they see your film? I hope that they can follow it. I hope that they uh, have some compassion for, even though it's a country you've never heard of, even though it's a bank you've never heard of, and uh, there's a lot of elements at play that you are familiar with, and that this level of corruption and crime, you know, even in a utopia like Andorra, it's it's not immune um, to a place like Andorra. It can happen anywhere. Um, and also, I think it's okay. I know what I want because it's kind of where I started with this project before I realized what it was. You got to be really careful with the banking system, man. <laughs> Your money can evaporate overnight um, if you're in the it's in the wrong bank. And I'll tell you this: I, this is the worst advice ever. But your bank, your money's only safe in the big, big monster commercial criminal banks. That's the only place they're safe. HSBC, Danska, the big ones that commit all the crimes. Your money will be safe there. I'd think twice about putting it into a mom and pop bank because it can go belly up with a stroke of a pen. <laughs> it's, that's terrible. It's so counterintuitive because you want to support the mom and pop, but your money is your lifeblood of survival, you know? So yeah, got to take that in consideration. Well, Eric, thank you so much for uh, taking time to uh, talk about your film, The Andorra Hustle. And just a reminder, that's going to be available on Amazon Prime. For more on Center Stage, visit stageandscreen.com. And hey, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Until next time, this is Mark Gordon, and I'll see you Center Stage. Center Stage, Center Stage, Center, Center, Center Stage. Center Stage. Hello, this is Homer Simpson. Whenever I want to know what's going on in the entertainment world, I listen to Center Stage with Mark Gordon.